0: This is the God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host Pat McMahon. Well, I will say welcome back to this international audience that we have. Uh, I say welcome back with the uh, the assumption that many of you are as regular in your uh, in your listening association with me in the God Show. As you've told me you are. Uh, If you're brand new, this is a fabulous introduction uh, to what we do. Uh, We have a number of people often who visit us in the studio, spiritual leaders from here in many, many capacities. And if you are a regular listener, you know that this isn't really about religion, but about uh, the spiritual heights that man can reach. And uh, in this particular case, though, this is a guest that I'm I'm especially happy that you joined us for this one because I find in reading the book Between the Listening and the Telling, that's the title, subtitled How Stories Can Save Us, but in reading the book by Mark Iaconelli, I found that suddenly, rather than a stranger that, I meet about the same time that you do when I talk to authors from around the world. But Mark, I found a a real bond, or 37, uh, because I discovered when I was reading the biographical material in advance of the book, that Mark lives and has lived for a number of years in one of my favorite places in the world. Where my daughter and son-in-law still live as, as actress at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and uh, Ashland, Oregon, is this idyllic arts community, in a beautiful part of the Northwest. And besides that, besides the tie with Ashland, Mark's son spent a great deal of time in Ireland. And if you're a regular listener, you know that John Patrick Michael McMahon automatically feels a certain kinship there. And Mark is a storyteller and appreciates storytellers. So, Mark, as I welcome you to The God Show after that extraordinarily long introduction, uh, let let me tell you that from my perspective, the ideal talk show guest, virtually all of us in this business agree, the, the ideal talk show guest is one who tells stories, but why are they so rare? You do talk shows as part of your life and part of your promotion, and you know what I'm talking about.
1: Yes, yes, I do. You know, we're, we're, we're losing the art of relationship, the art of communication, and we're all wired for story. Our brains are wired for story. We have story-loving brains. Um, you know, you walk into a, a, a kindergarten classroom and if there's chaos going on. All you have to do is yell out, once upon a time, and ears perk up and the kids gather around. And I've done this. I've been a, I've been a preschool storyteller and a kindergarten storyteller, and it doesn't take much to wake up the, that story-loving part of ourselves. And that never goes away. What's the, the sadness of this time, of course, is that we've moved these screens which no one loves their relationship with their phone, you know we all know it's a troubled relationship and it's doing something to us um that's harming us in some way, and we're missing the sort of the storytelling side of ourselves that's a sensual experience, you know it's an, when we're in a room with somebody and we we see the glint in their eye or the or the little turn of their mouth as they get to a particular part of a story, yes. We miss all that when we're just on these highly edited videos or social media, etc. So.
0: But since the beginning of communication, though, since the beginning yeah. of people grunting at one another in a cave, before right. before they go out and try to bring dinner home, uh, we have always gravitated toward stories and storytellers. Some of them carved into the walls of those caves, but it dates back. To the beginning of time. Now, how is it though that people listening right now can learn to become storytellers? Do you have a uh, a formula?
1: Well, for the first step is just realizing we're, we all are storytellers. In fact, I, I would I'd be surprised if there's anybody listening who can go through a day without telling a story. You know, I was at the grocery store. They come you come home, you know, from the grocery store, and you're like, oh my gosh, you can't believe what happened. This woman had a cockatoo on her shoulder and kept saying it was a safe and tame bird. It was insane. You know, and the bird came and attacked this One guy was had cashews in his hands. And, you know, we tell moments to one another all day long. We tell stories because what we're really doing uh, when we tell a story from our own life anyways, we're continuing to thank people. This is what it feels like to be me. And we want others to enter into that experience. This is what it was like to be at the gas station. This is what it was like to grow up in, in Ireland in the 1970s. Yes. This is what it was like to, to get a speeding ticket yesterday. And so we tell these stories to exchange, like a kind of communion, our human experience. And we, and we want to seduce and invite uh, others into that experience. So, so we all know how to do this. A lot of it's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of what the title reveals. It's, it's about listening, creating settings where we list, can listen to one another. And it's about asking good questions, story-based questions. You know, tell me about your first kiss. When was the first time you felt betrayed? When was the first time you felt like uh, an adult? Um, you know, we, we, you ask questions like that, and immediately you send people into the attic of their own soul and they start pulling out pictures you know well here's the time you know my father died when I was 14 and I was suddenly uh, the man of the house and they start launching into a story and just the question has evoked that memory you know and so knowing how to ask good questions and then creating a setting where people have the time and the permission to set aside the phones and, and to actually listening to one another um, the stories start to emerge Naturally,
0: I'm glad you brought up your father as that part of the story, that part of the book that we're talking about between the listening and the telling, and that important part of your life because what a storyteller he must have been.
1: He, he was. He, he won the he won the national Toastmasters international international Toastmasters speaking contest at 27 years old. Uh, he was quite an animated. Uh, speaker. He was funny. And had, um, he had a spiritual depth. And he knew how to, um, you know, he would study comedians and watch that tension that a good comedian has with an audience, you know, where they know exactly where to hit that line, you know, to allow the bubble to kind of rise and then to pop it just brings that laughter. And he could do that with humor as well as with emotion. And as his eldest son, uh, I watched, you know, I sat in the front row, started a little church in a small town not far from where I live now in Wairika, California. And I always sat in the front and watched, you know, how is he, this magic that he was creating. And most of his speaking and preaching and teaching, he he relied on stories. And I, I watched how, what it did to me, you know, I could hear him tell a story for the the 27th time, and I would still notice tears welling in my eyes.
0: Mark Iaconelli, the way you talk about your father and the way he communicated, uh, was that as his, uh, his position in the church that you felt that uh, he also was communicating with, with the uh, community at the same time?
1: Yeah, I mean, he he he's a very difficult person to describe. He he started in youth work, um, but then he had this kind of radical, what he called a uh, mad, a Christian Mad Magazine. So it was satirical, <laughs> it was full with humor, yes. and it poked fun at the church. They never took any ads. It, it kind of came out of that '60s, uh, '70s zeitgeist of we're getting back to basics here, and then but then he would always have an, an interview in the in the center of this. Magazine that um that you know had some thought leader that was presenting Christian faith in in a way that felt authentic. So he's so he had he had a big beard and long hair. He kind of looked like Jerry Garcia, (laughs) and he traveled around the United States and was kind of an iconoclast. Uh, You know, he was called a Christian gadfly, but he moved in a he moved among you know sort of all the circles of American Christianity, liberal and conservative. he led the national youth workers conventions every year. Which uh, at the end of his life, there, he did three of them a year. They'd have three to, to four thousand people at each one, and so he was just a very uh, hard guy to describe. And then he lived in this small town around this little church, and um, and I was just kind of an, in awe of him. He had a charisma. He was funny. He could be vulnerable and transparent. And the biggest struggle that I mentioned in the book is just I wanted a lot more time with him. And he was a busy guy. He had a, he had a lot of things going on, and he was on the road, uh, maybe 180 days uh, to 200 days a year. And I just didn't get to see him enough, and that was our tension.
0: Well, you were a child of the church, though, in a number of capacities. By the way, my only regret in reading the book was that I'd never gotten a chance to read the magazine that you were just referring to, because it sounded... Yeah, like, the Wittenberg it, door, yeah. sounded delightful. But you, as a child of the church, will particularly appreciate uh, my observation that I've always felt particularly about Catholicism, and that is the... Uh, The the primary sin of the church, at least from the standpoint of the rituals that it celebrates, the sermons, Uh, nobody in seminary, (laughs) at least Catholic seminary, ever seems to do anything about oratory. And other than rare exceptions like Fulton Sheen many years ago, most priests are really boring when it yes. comes to making their way to the pulpit and addressing the congregation, uh, it sounds like you agree.
1: I absolutely agree, and I and I used to hear my father say this all the time when we we'd watch uh, political conventions, you know, the Democratic Republican conventions. Like, why don't these people know how to speak? You know, but also in in church circles too, um, he was he was mystified that uh, as followers of Jesus, a storyteller. Why weren't they using story? You know, why were they using so many platitudes and and sort of dry ideology or or theology? And so uh, so that was always a frustration to him. And in fact, at the end of his life, he was writing a book on how to do a funeral. He loved doing funerals, but he felt that everybody he'd ever seen in a church did them wrong. Um, that they focused on (laughs) teaching people or giving theology when what people really want at a funeral, and you know this from your Irish heritage, they want to hear the stories. Mm -hmm. They just want to hear the stories because it brings that person who's passed back into the room. You feel their life when you start to place them in stories again.
0: Your mother, meanwhile, communicated a very different message. Uh, Share that, if you will, with our audience.
1: Yeah. So, so my mother has uh, struggled with schizophrenia her whole life, and um, the first time I encountered it was after my parents divorced. So there was no one to interpret uh, to, to myself or to my siblings what was going on. I mean, this is a, a woman who was telling us uh, she'd come in and. and communicate to us that, that she was being chased by the government or that someone had put wiretaps in our home or we need to leave for a number of weeks because uh, she was worried about her life and she was being followed and you know at 12, 13, 14 years old, I did I thought this was true. I thought she this, these things were really happening. she didn't she didn't talk in a way that would indicate that um, that this was a, a broken reality. And it took a while to figure out, wait a minute, this is not what's happening here. And we didn't have anybody to really, my siblings and I, to tell us what was happening. And so we we kept it all secret. We, all kind of, we didn't even talk to each other about it. We just thought, okay, mom's being chased and she's taking off and I got to go to school. And you just kind of lived in two separate realities. And it wasn't until I was much older in my 20s that I started asking questions of why didn't anybody deal with this? Even when she was uh, hospitalized um, when I was in high school, it just it still wasn't talked about uh, among her family, and no one really talked to us about it. It was just a sh- it was kind of shrouded in shame, and that and-
0: part of your life and that part of the book is heartrending. Uh, when I was reading about all the things not only that your mother was going, she was a schizophrenic, uh, but also the rest of the family. Uh, the book that I'm talking about is Between the Listening and the Telling. Uh, not a great deal of uh, of tragedy in Mark Iaconelli's life, at least when it comes to the book. Uh, far more uplifting stories than the sadness of his uh, life with his mom and the absence of his dad. Uh, between the listening and the telling also has a, uh, has a subtitle, how stories can save us, save us from what Mark?
1: Well, I mean, if you were to ask our, 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 surgeon general Vivek Murthy, he would say the greatest threat to our country in the United States right now is loneliness. And that's what I'm seeking to do is reconnect us to one another, uh, we all know we're becoming divided, not not just because of the political divides, but also, you know, you go into a, a family's household and they're all sitting looking at their phones, you know, and they're not connecting at home either. And the more disconnected we are, the less resilient we are, the more anxious we are, the the, the more depression we, we carry. And one of the ways we feel one another and connect to one another and, um, find a common heart is through this language of story, which is really the language of, as I said earlier, of human experience. This is what it feels like to be me. And when we tell stories to one another, it's an, it's an act of hospitality. I'm, I'm welcoming you into how I see, hear, and feel the world. And there's a, a kind of bond that happens beneath true and false, that happens beneath right and wrong. Um, where I can feel the human connection, it, it does that in a way other forms of language doesn't do, and so that—that's the—that's the part of it that I think is redemptive or, or or can save us at this time. Is we need one another, and we, as Mother Teresa said, right, the reason we have no peace is we forget that we belong to one another, and we feel that belonging and that connecting uh, spirit when we when we story our lives to one another.
0: Uh, our humorous. Storytellers like Mark Twain and a contemporary neighbor of ours here in the Valley uh, that has uh, been missed so much since she passed. Irma Bombeck. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the humorists who use humor, is that the most therapeutic kind of story there is? Well,
1: you know, in the Catholic tradition, um, tears... Sometimes you pray for tears. Tears are a sign of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're a sign that the divine's with you, that God's with you. Just that release of tears. I think it's the same with laughter. I think when we have true belly laughter, that release is, is a divine experience of the divine. You know, it's an experience of God with us. You know, we there's a humility that happens and there's a self-recognition that happens in in humor. And when we do it with a group, To look at one another while we're laughing together is is just a beautiful, humble, uh, connecting kind of experience. So yeah, I I agree. I mean, those that can bring us to that kind of self recognizing laughter, laughter like Irma Bombach,
0: they're holy people
1: in in a particular way.
0: You do spend some time, however, uh, in the book discussing experiences that you've had watching people share painful stories uh, with either small intimate groups or large audiences, Uh, stories about uh, drug abuse, sexual repression, of course, your own family story about mental illness. Um, There's value there too, isn't there? Well, yeah, you know, we're all...
1: Uh, we're all imitating ourselves right now. That's that's part of the, the pain, you know, or any, any young person trapped on social media, it's, they know it's all false, you know, and they know that there's, the, the real self is two or three layers back from what we're revealing to one another. So when you get in a room, you know, we all are hoping for a good question and a listening ear. We're all hoping for, Uh, some confession space, someplace we can drop the masks and feel seen and heard and known. So my work, I work with this nonprofit called The Hearth. And what we do is we gather people together. Um, Sometimes people in small circles will have story-based questions and a particular rules for listening, and they'll tell stories to one another. Sometimes we do it as a whole town. So we'll have 400 people from our little town of Ashland, Oregon here, and they'll be all in the room, and the theme might be letting go or winter tales, um, something, something like this, or frontline stories. And local community members will get up, and we have real stories by regular folks. And often the stories people want to tell are revealing. They're, they're vulnerable. They're transparent. And it's their own way of trying to get free, of trying to tell everyone, this is me this is who I really am. And when that happens in a room, you feel everyone sort of, uh, exhale. (laughs) It's like, okay, it's okay to be human. Okay. I'm not so strange. You know, I also uh, feel grief or I also feel, um, this struggle of not knowing who I am. And we hear that in the stories and it's, um, the kind of grace.
0: Is the hearth exclusively in Ashland, Oregon? No,
1: I mean, every year we do trainings, sometimes for three days or, or, or five days, do some in person, some online, so that other people can be these kinds of conveners. Um, and so there are people who have gone through our trainings, who lead these kinds of story groups. Now, if you know the moth on National Public Radio or yes. there, there are other storytelling kinds of projects, a lot of those and, and they're beautiful and they're and they're super fun. And I listen to them. Um, but they tend to focus more on the craft of storytelling, you know, getting a great opening line and really uh, hitting that conflict and that arc and, and finding a resolution. Those are beautiful projects. We're interested in the relational aspect of stories, how stories connect us. And sometimes the transformational, the way, the way stories change us or open us or heal us or organize us so so it's so, so our story groups that we have folks uh, around the country and and in and in the UK leading they're focused on how do we build community through story more than uh performance
0: mark uh, you are someone just after reading the one book and there have been other books you should uh, before this hour is out uh, let everybody know uh, what else you've written but for now uh In reading the book, I really do consider you to be um, a well-studied researcher uh, uh, in the field of storytelling. You really are an authority on the subject. So I depend on you to tell me something I've always wanted to know. Why it is, and I'm asking you this uh, one Christian to another, can you tell me about the stories of the Bible and why it was necessary to... Emphasize God's failings—that is, the wrath of God, the anger, uh, the vengeful nature of God—that is such an integrated part of so many of the biblical stories. You know what I mean? I've never understood yeah. it.
1: Well, you mean why are they there? Why, why? Why do we keep pass? Why do we keep passing these down, human beings? these wrath, vengeance kind of based uh, stories. Um, well, I mean, first of all, I'd say, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm just one guy. But um, what I what I would speculate is, as I said, story is is our way of communicating our experience. This is what it feels like. This is how, um, this is what it's like to be in my mind and my heart and to look through my eyes and hear with my ears. And that is the experience that that this world there is something that feels like vengeance or feels like wrath or feels like there there is a violence in nature. You know, there's predators and there's prey and there's natural disasters and there's suffering and there's plagues and all this kind of thing.
0: But I don't want and, my I don't want my God, my universal uh, figure uh, to be represented by those qualities. Right. <laughs> and, you know, so, so
1: for me anyways, that's why the evolution of human consciousness and realizing a deeper sense of of grace and this uh, transcendent sort of mercy at the heart of things, why that was so critical to be brought forth through through Jesus and and other and in other traditions and in other teachers, but I think there's still a part of us that's um, enraptured by this divine punisher, you know, and and it's not helpful, particularly when that gets aligned with, with political entities, and it's a story we feel. You know there are good stories and there are bad stories. There are stories that bring life and there are stories that bring death, and that's a story for me that that brings death and destruction, as as you as you insinuate here. And we need better stories, and that kind of discernment um, is subtle sometimes and difficult. I mean, people do the same thing with Jesus. They 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 see Jesus as someone who is going to come back, you know, like a like a good. Um, vengeance movie or something like that. He's going to come back with, you know, AK-47s and a military and he's going to wipe out all the bad things, you know, the next time he shows up and there, and it, and it will be revenge for what he suffered here. And I hear that kind of theology because we, because the most difficult thing for us to accept is grace, is that we all we're all welcomed. We all get in. There's something beautiful about everyone, and whoever your enemy is, they also contain the divine spark. And that's been a, a message that's um, elusive to us and hard for us to really trust.
0: Boy, did you lay out a possible smash screenplay just now? <laughs> yeah. And that is here it is, ladies and gentlemen. We've got we've got really too many uh, big time movies this summer, so we'll wait. Till next summer for Jesus is Jaws.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's, it's sort of more like he's on the cross. I mean, I, the way I picture it, that, that Hollywood would like to do it, probably Mel Gibson even, is he suddenly, you know, he's muscular up on that cross. He rips the nails out. And here come the angels. And they are armed to the teeth. And there's hell to pay right
0: now. <laughs> Presented by Marvel. Uh, and 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 those stories, of course, are around, and they're very influential. Tell us about interludes. I like that part of the book
1: well, so so in the book, I'm trying to uplift this relational nature of story, and I do that by showing ways I've used story uh, in different kinds of settings with different groups. But I also just wanted to tell some stories, and particularly stories that are are keystone. Stories that I return to again and again. And so there's, there's three different parts where I just let myself uh, have the freedom of, of moving out of my head and no longer discussing how stories work and just uh, hopefully weaving a tale that's based on something I've experienced or, or a friend has experienced and letting those stories work their magic and hopefully bring people into the power the stories have to to open us in ways that uh, other kinds of talk can't do. You know,
0: we've been talking about storytelling s- structurally and historically, but it's a little bit like uh, trying to examine um, comedy and, and why something is funny and then trying to break it down. There's nothing Less funny than trying to over-examine uh, comedy. So rather than just talking about what makes for good st- storytelling, I challenge you to tell one now, and I get to pick it. And that is the story of the fawn.
1: Okay. Yes. So when my when my daughter uh, was three years old, she refused to wear clothes. <laughs> And it didn't matter, you know, they were polyester or cotton or tank tops, whatever. They were too loose, too bumpy, too tight. I don't like how it feels on my neck. And within seconds, she would rip these things off. We live up in in the mountains here by the California-Oregon border. And as the weather got colder, we became stir crazy because we couldn't go outside with this naked child at least in our town we knew someone would call child protection services so we have to stay indoors <laughs> January came around it's dark old stir crazy my wife says we're going for pizza I'm I'll get the boys we'll be waiting in the van you get Gracie you get her dressed <laughs> So this was formidable you know Gracie she's watching this and she Like, okay, we'll see what happens. We go upstairs. I get a particular outfit that's kind of crushed velvet that sometimes she could leave on. I put clothes on. She starts wiggling and she starts yelling, too loose, too loose. It's too loose. And I just went into story brain, just knowing that sometimes that can bring us into a different place. And I ran to the window, looking up into the mountains. You can't yell, too loose. Why? Come over here look up in the mountains you see those trees up there uh that's where the fawn village is and the youngest fawn who lives in that village is is named toulouse and if you yell toulouse he's going to come down into the town but i want him to no we don't want him to come down because the humans will catch him so we and as i'm telling this i'm putting on the pants the shirt and as we know how story works right she's She's leaving time and space. She's leaving her body, and she's now in that imaginative story world of where these fawns live. So, so basically, every night she started asking. We were able to, we had a successful night at the pizza parlor as long as I kept telling the story. I couldn't stop talking the whole time. <laughs> but, uh, but then every night she would ask for a Toulouse story. So I would tell these stories of this fawn and the adventures, and eventually the fawn meets Grace and they have these adventures. Well, a month or two into it, she's like, Dad, why don't we go up into those very mountains and meet the fawns? And particularly because I had told her in the stories that this fawn was a friend of a little girl named Grace, just like her name. And he was friends with Grace because he knew she was honest and trustworthy and good. So she thought, well, my name's Grace. If I go up there, I'll meet these fawns. So we go up. And... There's great boulders up in the mountains here, among uh, cedar and, and pine trees, and, and we go up there looking for the font. And she sees in this one spot giant boulders, random boulders, kind of scattered in the woods there. And she says, "These, uh, this must be the fawn village. Dad. This is the fawn village. They turn it into rock during the day, so it doesn't look like homes. So then at night they come out. Mm-hmm. So we hike around these rocks and." She finds sticks. Dad, these are the fawns. And uh, we see these curled pieces of bark. Dad, this is what they use for paper. And then we see a burnt out fire with blue ribbon around. And she's like, Dad, this is what the fawns drink. Just like you. And so she's noticing all these things. And she starts calling out for the fawns. And of course, no fawns come out, no fawns show up, and she starts to get this sick feeling that, uh, that she's being judged. And they don't trust so this goes on weekend after weekend. We go look for the fawns until one day she, um, she has me put her up on top of a rock and she's brought gifts and she sings a song with her eyes closed, hoping the fawns will come out. And this is after weeks and weeks of trying and, and, and no fawns appear. And she's tried everything. And she feels like, um she's being judged, and she we I try to explain to her, maybe I don't know why they're I don't want you to talk, Dad. I don't want you to tell me these stories anymore. Anyways, we come down out of the woods and we come into this beautiful park here in Ashland Lithia Park. She's been silent, she's despondent, she's in sadness, and she doesn't want me to tell these stories anymore because the fawns never appear. And there, in the grass, uh fur legs. a vest goatee horns coming out of the side of his head playing a wooden flute is a fawn now it turned out it was just some guy right some guys just got with with fur pants (laughs) dancing around he'd wired deer antlers to his head and um and grace says you know there he is and i think this guy's on drugs, but I have to play it out. And so we go out there, and and uh, this guy, whoever he was, he had a mask, had oak leaves around his eyes. He was so gentle with Grace, and I said, "This is my daughter, Mister Fawn. We've been looking for you a long time." And, and uh, he puts out his hand, hand, and Grace shakes hand with him, hands with him, and. And uh, I couldn't believe it. She runs through the park yelling, I saw a fawn, I saw a fawn. And when I catch up to her, she, Dad, now do you believe? Now do you believe? Uh, so it's a little bit of a long story. It's a little longer in the book, too, but that was the.
0: I loved it. Uh, you introduced us not only to Gracie, but the fawns of Ashland. The Fawns of Ashland, yes. And and by the way, if folks have not been to this theater community, uh, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival has been there since the 30s, but there are other theater organizations and music organizations. It's really an arts center. And it didn't surprise me at all when I read that there was a guy in Lithia Park with uh furry legs and horns because right you run into those every once in a while <laughs> yeah, in know? ashland
1: yeah in fact, the guy said to me um because i told i said we've been looking for fawns for a long time and he said well i sleep right over there you know i come by about once uh
0: twice a year
1: and, and there was a backpack and a sleeping bag and, an entrance and he he's a traveler you know and,
0: we we all have uh, we all have favorite actors and singers, and so on. Is there is there one storyteller, uh, alive or dead, that you would stand in line and pay ridiculous sums of money uh, to see and hear telling stories? Is there one at the top of your list?
1: Well, of course, you know, I mean, he, he, he still goes out and performs once in a while, but I, I really was enraptured by Garrison Keillor. Oh, yeah. And he, just the timbre of his voice and the, the the breadth of his imagination and sometimes bringing you into very intimate kind of pains, you know, in, in a domestic environment or something like that. And then being able to find the humor in it that, that allowed us to all see ourselves in the struggle... I didn't find that, that self-recognition and that humor release.
0: Uh, and uh, you're not just a storyteller. Uh, I uh, I was surprised to find that someone has referred to you um, in, I believe, Gaelic uh, as a story catcher.
1: So there's a, a beloved organ writer named Brian Doyle um, who passed away a few years ago. I had dinner with him. His parents spoke Gaelic and were from Ireland, and he's the one who told me about a sanaki or shanaki, which is a Gaelic word for story catcher. And what he told me was in in the old villages in in Ireland, you'd have a figure who would collect the stories that were needed in the village, some of these coming from history, some from the traditions of that community, some uh, contemporary stories from what people were living and then apply those stories when they were needed like a doctor uh, applying a medicine or a tincture you know and you would present these at a wake or, or at a wedding or at a family gathering um, and so that i feel that's a little bit more my relationship to story is i i collect stories and i try to bring them forth when they're needed i also try to create settings where people in the community can share the stories that we need to hear so i don't i don't always need to be the storyteller i can Uh, find those who hold the story and then create a platform where they can share them. And and I feel that's mostly my, my work as a, maybe a
0: community storyteller. Well, the ultimate community storyteller was Jesus. Uh, The parables uh, that everybody remembers, the life, the life stories, uh, the, um, uh, the standards of behavior in story form uh, were as parables and uh it's it's interesting to me that those have lived as much as as anything else in scriptures
1: yeah and 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 so the gospel writers they're telling it in story form because story is full body meaning making it's it's doesn't just address the intellect or the rational side your emotions are brought forth, you know, you feel an anticipation or you feel emotions when you're going through these stories, as well as the values and ideas. So, so all of your self, mind, heart, body, soul is touched in story. And so the best way to try to position uh, a human soul to make contact with the truths or the realities that Jesus was presenting you have to do that through story you, you can't just do it through through propositions and and that's what the gospel writers knew and that's what Jesus knew that's why Jesus is turning to story you know the prodigal son so that you can identify with those characters and and catch the the grace that's being presented there
0: and no matter what the culture is no matter where it is on the planet uh the uh, one thing that parents all seemed To have in common, Mark Iaconelli, is their response to the request of a child, usually at bedtime. Daddy, mommy, tell me a story. Everybody understands that. Well, did you tell your children stories? I mean, besides Gracie and the fawn, what about Noah and Scott? And Joseph, yeah. Um, excuse me, yes. Noah and Joseph, yes, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, of
1: course, and you know, of course, the best stories that kids want are stories that are that are made up and that involve them, where they're the characters in in the story, and i we created whole worlds together, and what's interesting as a storyteller is I never knew really where the stories were going, either, you know, I'd sort of set these they'd be set loose on a ship, and they're going off the coast of Nova Scotia, and they're bringing food to uh, hungry uh, villagers in Greenland, and there's a sound in the fog, you know, off the port side of the boat. And as I would be describing these scenes to my sons at bedtime, I didn't know what was going to happen next. I'd get surprised by who the creature was or what was showing up, because the imaginations let loose. And, And stories really exist between. That's why this First word of this book is between the listening, and the telling. I'm interested in that tension, and when the listening is deep and rich and good, they pull a story from you. The listeners pull the story from you. Sometimes it's a testimony of your own experience, or or in an imaginative realm. It's 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 a whole nother um, dreamed reality that can be pulled from you when you have attentive listeners, and so suddenly you have this. Uh, these these three things at play. You have the listener, you have the teller, and then you have the story itself, which is which encompasses both of them. And it takes both that deep listening and this willingness to give yourself over to the story that makes that magic uh, come to to the front.
0: Even though the, over the millennia, uh, the one thing that hasn't changed is the enthusiasm about hearing a good story moving, inspirational, funny. Um, but I detect a note of pessimism uh, on your part, not only through this conversation, Mark, but also in the book between the listening and the telling that we're losing some of that. And is it something that can't be reacquired?
1: Yeah, well, we are losing a part of that. You know, I mean, there's There's many, many books on story right now. Most of them uh, are written for sales or marketing or branding or um, on that kind of thing for, in the business realm. In fact, there are master's degree in business at Harvard and Stanford that both involve a lot of storytelling um, classes. There's over a hundred thousand marketers on on LinkedIn that call themselves storytellers. Really? So yes, this is the new title you know that marketers call themselves. And I understand that, but what we're missing, as I said, is this the sacred element of story, which is to bring us down to the root of our existence and the rhythms of what it means to be fully alive. And this is what story can do, but it requires a sacred space in a way. It requires focused listening. It requires patience and time it, you know, this nonprofit here, we call the hearth an old, you know, image in, in your rootland of Ireland where you gather around the fire and maybe you have a, a little something to drink or eat. And then grandmother starts to tell a story. And in the intimacy of those relationships, we feel one another in a way that we often miss in our day to day lives. And so there is a, a sadness that I carry that um, that we 're not we 're missing one another, and the consequences of that is this loneliness that the Surgeon General talks about, which leads to um, health deteriorating but also uh, political chaos you know when we don 't really feel one another
0: anymore so i 'm over at the Yaconoli house and i 'm in Ashland. Just simply enjoying the atmosphere and the environment of that great community in Oregon, and the great um, the great company that the Yaconelli family is. Because you're all storytellers, the kids, uh, those who have gone into theater, uh, and those that have taken other directions and routes professionally, but all have picked up on the benefit and value. Uh, that you've taught them, Mark, as an example. So I'm going to impose on you before uh, we have to say farewell for this conversation this time around to tell a story I read in the book and Lord knows I certainly hope you remember the one I'm talking about uh, because it was memorable to me and will always be memorable and that is about that that child born so damaged so physically damaged that his mother chose to virtually ignore him in a state of denial that god could ever have provided this kind of of baby for her to care for you know what i'm talking about yes yes so
1: so this is this is a story i retell of uh, my spiritual mentor, Morton Kelsey, who, who corresponded with Carl Jung and was an Episcopal priest and, and, wrote over 40 books on the spiritual life. And he was my spiritual director and mentor. And he, he often told a story in the early years when he was mentoring me, when I was in my twenties and, and he was in his seventies, um, about his childhood. And it was a terrible, uh, story. Uh, he was born premature, what they called a blue baby. He was born in a mining town up in Pennsylvania. And he was rejected by uh, his mother. His mother refused to to feed him. She thought he was going to die. Didn't want to nurse him, was was forced to nurse him. Um, And as soon as she uh, weaned him, she wanted him out of the house. And so he was put in a back house, what they called a mother-in-law, a little adjacent cabin. They hired a 16-year-old girl in the town, in the mining town, to live in that little home, that little addition in the back and to be his caretaker but i mean that was that, that huge level of rejection of course creates so much pain that was when he was in his 20s um, he wanted to to end his life and uh, a lot of suicidal thoughts just that that feeling of of being rejected and so he um he went up into the the mountains and and took a rifle and was going to end his life and just before he went through the the terrible act um, a song came to him, although he always said it, it, was, it was more than a song, because I didn't hear it through my ears, I heard it through everything. And it was uh, such a, a, a melody of love, and he felt so held by this song, not knowing what it was or where it came from, it was like, like a, a divine experience, that he didn't go through with it. And, and that became the beginning of his, his own spiritual quest. So this is, he, this is the story I heard him tell many times of uh, the rejection, this kind of divine intervention, and then how it led him on, a, on, on his own spiritual journey. But then in his mid-70s, I, I picked him up in San Francisco at the airport. I was uh, I was living, I was at a seminary at that time, and I was taking him to this event, and he said, uh, Mark, you're not going to believe what happened. And I said, what? He said, I, I got a letter uh, from someone who said, um, you know, did you ever live in Palmerston, Pennsylvania? And I wrote her back, and that I had, and and uh, she said she wrote him a, another letter saying, "Well, I've been looking for you my my whole life. You know, when I was 16 years old, um, I lived in the back of your family's property, and I took care of you when you were a baby. Mm. Would you please come and visit me?" And you know, she was in her 90s. He's in his 70s, and he couldn't believe it. And and uh, so he and his wife Barbara they they flew back to Pennsylvania. And, um, months later, he told me what, what occurred there. They, they showed up and here's this little woman, bright as ever, all her faculties in a little dress and, and she grabbed, he was tall and, and had hearing aids and she kind of reached up and pulled his face down and looked in his eyes and, (laughs) and began to cry. And, and, uh, she said, I have to tell you, you know, when, when I was 16, I was, I was hired to take care of you and I felt like I was the luckiest girl in the whole town. I had my own little baby to care for and they had a crib in this room you never slept in that crib you always slept next to me and I told you stories and I sang you songs and and your, you know your parents thought there was something wrong with you that you were developmentally disabled or that and I knew you were bright I knew it was a it was a hearing problem that you were struggling with it was not your intellect and and you lived with me for three years, and I just um, felt madly in love with you. She went on to get married. She was never able to have kids, uh, and so she always wondered what happened to this boy. And then he, she said, like, tell me your life. I want to know your story. So he stayed there a week, and they told their stories back and forth. And then when he went to leave, um, she hugged him, and she just spontaneously started to, to sing, and she was just singing this song. And the song she sang um, was the same melody, the same lullaby that had come to him over 50 years earlier when, when he was in a point of despair mm. and planning to end his life. It was mm. the same song mm. um, that had freed him and sent him on this journey. Um, so that that was so powerful to experience for me to experience that with him, the before he met her and the after. And when he died, I don't know if I include this in the book or not, but... He kept a little photograph that she had of her holding him when she was about 17 and he was about one and a half years old. He kept that next to his bed um, and the bed he died in, that photo was there as, as the face of love that had always been there, but he had not known the story. He, uh, he did not know about this woman and this caregiver until she found him and told him uh, the forgotten history of his own life.
0: I love it. I'm glad that you remembered it in such detail because it was so moving uh, to read. And we've only got two minutes left, so I'm not going to ask you for a 12-minute story. Yeah, okay. But, Mark, I would like you to address that dreaded moment that so many people in our audience have faced when somebody says, "Uh, yeah, and we want you to wrap up the big dinner... Uh, where the office is all gathered together for the holidays or whatever, and we want you to tell everybody a story and be entertaining. Now, so I'm not going to ask you to uh, go through a litany of things to do when you're putting together a story, but with just about a minute, tell folks what not to do when they're asked to tell a story. What is Uh, Just a couple of things you should avoid like a pox. (laughs) Well, you know, I I write in the book, Barry
1: Lopez, another organ writer, says uh, an authentic story is about us. An inauthentic story is about me. So when you're asked to tell that story, what is it that people need to hear? What's the moment that you need to mirror back to them or the things that that group carries that you want to hold up. You know, to love someone is to reveal the beauty of someone to themselves. So what could, what moments, images, experiences, encounters, whether it's in that workspace or in your family, can you hold up that everybody
0: says, yes, that's who we really are? Great advice, and, and here yeah. is an opportunity have for you to take on a responsibility. Go to Google, find out about all the books that Mark Iaconelli has written. But as far as I'm concerned, you should concentrate on between the listening and the telling, especially if you're going to tell somebody a story. This is Pat McMahon.